Tonight, we get to finish going through our series of uh, Philippians, and um, before, oh, I want to read the text, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the text, so let's do it that way. Um, Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9 is the passage that we're looking at tonight. Um, you might have a Bible with you, or a phone where you have it on, or it's also on the screen behind me, and for me, on the screen in front of me, too. But I like my physical Bible, so I'm going to read it out here. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. It's the word of God. God, we, we honor you tonight. We expect you to be here tonight. I expect you to be here. I actually really need you to be here tonight. Because I know that my words have no power in themselves. I know that, that it's your Holy Spirit that actually puts power into it. And it's your Holy Spirit who ministers to us tonight. So if you have ministered to me, would you minister to us tonight, Lord? Would you be present here with your Holy Spirit? This is, you have full permission to do your work here. We want you, we want more of you, less of ourself, and, and just experience that, experience that transformative power that only you can offer. And so may these words just be a reflection of my heart and a meditation, Lord. Would it bring glory to you? In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday was Easter Sunday, right? And uh, it was beautiful because we got to celebrate Easter Sunday at the Opera House, at least the people who came to last reality service. And the Opera House, I don't know if you've been there, but it is an amazing, amazing structure. I love how beautiful it is, how it just captivating the rooms are. When you come in and you, you like almost get to fight, it's like, man, I, maybe I get to sit in the box seat this time, I don't even have to pay for it, right? And so we, we have this amazing experience. We, we, we almost have like a reason to, to rejoice or like celebrate in that, right? Because there's something there's, there's beauty in there, and we rejoice and we celebrate beauty. Maybe you brought a family member or a friend or a coworker that you've been wanting to bring to church for a long time. Maybe they finally came with you. Um, some of you probably went out on a feast afterwards. You were just enjoying the beautiful sun, the company of people, um, and you just had reasons to rejoice. And then... We actually celebrated at last Sunday's Easter service the victory of Christ. We celebrated that through his death and his resurrection, he has given us our liberation from sin. He set us free from sin. And not only that, he's given us new life through his resurrected life. So altogether, last Sunday, at least the first half of the day, should have been kind of like enough reasons for us to at least rejoice a little bit, right? To be like in a rejoicing celebration mode. But maybe the next day happened to you 
or maybe even just the afternoon where you checked Instagram and you were like, why wasn't I invited to this feasting? Um, and and you, were, you started realizing that, that kind of like the reality is not that, I, that rejoicing is always present with me. You maybe had a feeling of loneliness. And you maybe had to realize, oh man, tomorrow is a day we have to go back to work and, and I don't get to experience this again. Or maybe you even remember that you don't have a work to go back to. So what I'm trying to say is that, that rejoicing isn't constant. We're not in a constant mind, a state of mind for rejoicing. Because we get to a place, and that's normal, of sadness and struggle. So the week started out beautifully. We had many reasons to rejoice. But we were back to the troubles of the world. And then you come here on Sunday, and the first words you hear from Paul, you hear him say, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And we hear these words and we feel disappointed because we have reasons to celebrate and we have the reality and the struggle of our world with us. And we can't, it seems like we can't get to the point to actually rejoice always. So what is this rejoicing always then that Paul talks about here? Let me take a second to just explain in my own words how I would define rejoicing. The, one of the most helpful alternative words to rejoicing that I found was celebration. We typically rejoice when we have things that are worth celebrating. This could be either a small thing that might be personal for us that's worth celebrating or big things. Um, some of us got to celebrate Matt and Lindsay's wedding on, on Friday, and that was like a, a beautiful way to celebrate. And oftentimes, I connect that word celebration or uh, rejoicing with happiness or being happy. And so when we hear this, this, these verses again, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I would say rejoice, we usually find two responses to get out of these. First, we dismiss it. It just feels like, man, this is just not achievable. I can't get there. I can't get to rejoicing always. It's just, it's just not possible, and I justify myself to myself that I just can't get there, and I feel bummed about it. The second way that we approach this verse is usually, I'm just going to fake it till I make it. If I just fake it, then people will think that I've actually attained it, I've made it there, and maybe that faking it will get me to a place where I, where I get over all, over all my troubles. And so I'm just running around with this face of, of happiness. And some of you might have felt like that, and that's totally fine last Sunday at Easter. Easter experience was, was a good, good experience, good. But it wasn't like the, the celebration, the rejoicing that everybody's talking about. You know, it was, it's like a duty maybe more going to church. And, and so we, we are left wondering still, how can I rejoice always and again rejoice? What we typically do is that we associate rejoicing with happiness. And I know that we know a thing or two about happiness in this country. I mean, you guys all remember the, the phrase of the Declaration of Independence, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it feels like that's, that's what we are spending the majority of our lifetime on, chasing after happiness. And we're trying so hard to achieve happiness. 
we're trying so hard to find a life that's actually satisfying. Because we know that if we are doing what we enjoy, we're happy. And then we hear these, ver- these sentences all the time, something like, just do what makes you happy, or just you do you, right? You just hear that all around you. And so it motivates you to just push deeper into this, this chase of happiness. Sometimes it actually even motivates us to, to make changes in our lives. We, we change who we hang out with. We change work. We change CGs. We change churches. We change, we change locations that we live in. We try so hard to escape the troubles, hoping to find the happiness somewhere else that we think is promised to us. And, and we never really find it. We get stuck. We never really find that happiness. And again, we remind that rejoicing somehow isn't possible. Let me tell you about my son Beckett for a second. Beckett is now 10 weeks and one day old. Yeah, thank you. And there's, there's a few things that I've observed about him, but one thing in particular. When Beckett was born, nobody had to teach him how to cry. He came out of the womb crying, right? Pretty normal. So it was natural to him to cry, but then it took about six weeks for this to happen. He actually just started between services, he started giggling too, which is amazing. But, but this smile right here is like motivation to me. This like, it gets me every time. Sorry, I have the screen right there, but I, I just, every time I look at his face and see these smiles, I'm just like blown away. Because there's, there's beauty in the smile of a child. And, and I personally, because I'm his father, I rejoice in it every time I see it. And, and I can almost say to a point, like, I, I, find, I find joy in him being happy. So at one point, Beckett learned to smile, right? For him, it was at six, point, uh, six weeks old. And we generally see smiling as an expression of joy. And like Beckett, all of us have learned to express joy through smiling at one point in our life. But then as we grow older, something happens. We become aware of our surroundings. We become aware of what the heaviness of the world, the problems that comes with it. And so many times, the sorrow and this pain outweighs the joy. And me personally, I try so often, so hard in this one hour that he's awake to just get him to smile just one more time, one more time smiling because it just makes me happy because I just find so much joy in it. And because I want to see him happy, right? But, but it's the same with Beckett. The crying comes back and it outweighs his joy. And so we kind of get annoyed with Paul's words, right? Because it just seems impossible. It seems unattainable. Because joy seems so temporary. How can I actually rejoice? Well, I think if we think of rejoicing as happiness, we will definitely experience that happiness and that rejoicing in that sense is impossible. It is impossible to always be happy. So what we need to do is you need to actually take a little deeper dive into the words of Paul here. In the verses right before verses 4, Paul seems to kind of get in and out of these feelings. It's kind of weird. And you actually observe this in a lot of Paul's writings. He starts out in verse 1 to be head over heels in love for the church in Philippi. 
He actually calls them his joy and his crown. But then he, the, literally, the next verse, he goes and talks about a church conflict. He, church about, he talks about heaviness that's happening in their church. And then the next verse again, he reminds himself, and he almost like, needs to remind himself, of how precious the people are to him and to Christ of that church. So he goes in and out of this joy. He's like presenting hard circumstances, but it's like, but the joy in the Lord and how good he is and what he's done is so important. I'm so thankful for who he is, it seems like he's saying. But, but I also know that there's this conflict that we need to deal with and I need to deal with. But, but Jesus has so much more to offer than just that. And what it seems like is that it almost seems like he's choosing to rejoice, even in the midst of difficulties. So then we start thinking that rejoicing must be rooted in something deeper, something deeper within us, that it has to be an expression of our inward being, that, that deeply inside of us joy is already rooted. Because in the end, it, 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 it is not rejoicing and happiness that we're after, it's actually we're, we're chasing after joy. Here's how Theopedia defines joy. Joy is a state of mind and an orientation of the heart. It is a settled state of contentment, confidence, and hope. So joy is and needs to be something rooted deeper, and it's already in us. It's already there. It's a state of mind. It's an orientation of our heart. It's essential to us. And it's so much into, in us that it actually just wants to burst out of us. And then when, you, when this joy bursts out of you, then you rejoice. And a lot of us find rejoicing in, in things like nature, right? I find a lot of rejoicing in sunsets and sunrises. Maybe some of you find joy in tasty food or a good drink, great fellowship or laughter. Those are all reasons to rejoice. Those are all expressions of joy and rejoicing. So when Paul talks about joy and rejoicing, it's closer to that definition of joy than it is what we think happiness means to us. And this understanding of joy and what joy is, and that it's central is actually essential and central to Paul. It's central to his mind, it's central to his understanding, and it's central to his life. It's at his core. And the same way as it's central to, this joy is central to him, joy is central to us as Christians too. It's almost like this driving force in us that drives us to something. And while Paul instructs, and this is important for us to recognize, while Paul instructs the Philippians quite often in a letter to rejoice, we need to remember that the circumstances that he is actually in himself. When Paul talks about rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in what he's done. He's sitting in chains in an arrest cell, awaiting his trial, and very shortly after writing these words, he's being killed. He was being beheaded. Because the crazy thing about Paul is that he actually always finds reasons to rejoice. He always finds reasons to rejoice, no matter what the circumstances are. You see, because rejoicing is the expression of when we choose to access joy. And often it's a choice.
when I um, showed you the pictures of Beckett, there's actually a bigger story to that. I didn't know if I was going to go here, but I am. Um, we were trying for a while to get pregnant, and it just didn't happen. And so you are at a place where everything around you goes on. All the people around you move on in life, and they get what you might be wanting to have too. And so a lot of times I had to apply the fake it till I make it principle because I just couldn't show my vulnerability in that point. I couldn't show my struggle because it wasn't about me, it was about that person. It was about that couple that actually got something that I was longing for. And I remember in those times, it was always important for me to remember first two things. It's my choice of how I'm going to deal with this. And that God is the giver and the sustainer of life. That it's not up to me, but that it's up to God. And that even if I might never have a kid, that he still has given me so much more. And so, even in the hardest circumstances of life, there is a choice for us to access the joy that's still within us. It's not absent. It's not gone. It's there. So if we have joy already planted deep, planted deep um, inside of us, then we just need the cues that pull it out of us, right? And Paul consistently fills his mind with with Christ. He reminds himself of what Christ has done. And he's moved into a state of consistent rejoicing, therefore. Because his words are, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And so there is the possibility for us to rejoice. So Paul had the awareness that joy is possible. And not only had he the awareness because he experienced it, to the church in Rome, he actually writes that the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, is joy in the Holy Spirit. And so he knew that as a citizen of not just Rome, but a citizen of heaven first and foremost, a citizen of the part of, of God's kingdom, that there was joy in the Holy Spirit to be experienced. Joy is an essential piece to living in God's kingdom. And the Holy Spirit who lives in us is able to work joy in us. And he gives us reasons to rejoice. He reminds us of things to rejoice in. Even when we are thinking we're, we're either far away from being able to rejoice or we are not allowed or not able to rejoice. Theologian Stanley Howe was, in his book, The Character of Virtue, Letter to a Godson, it's a great book, he writes, Books to, uh, he writes a, about a virtue every, um, every chapter to, to his godson. He says this about, about joy. And yet I think as you grow, you'll discover that joy is at the heart of being a Christian. I hope you find it to be true that to be a person of virtue is to learn to rejoice in what we've been given. And to learn to rejoice in this is called worship. What Howe was is making clear to us again here is first and foremost that joy is at the heart of being a Christian 
and that we have to learn to rejoice and learn to choose to rejoice. And that choice comes with awareness of what we've been given in Christ, what we've been given through our salvation, what we've been given in the truth of the gospel, and what we've been given in the Holy Spirit. And by becoming aware of that, we become people of worship. And so I want to give you a quick second, actually, now, to think about and let the Holy Spirit remind you about the things that you are actually able to rejoice in. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Another aspect of that how was quote that I just talked to you about um, is that of joy being connected to living a life of virtues. And to that life, joy is essential. Now, when I heard the first time, I read the first time the word virtues, I as a foreigner, as, as English not being my first language, I actually had, I had this big question. I was like, what, what is a virtue? How... I don't, I've, I don't think I've ever remember anybody ever talking to me about virtues. And so I had to look into that, right? And as I was looking into this, I, um, I started to understand that there was an understanding at that time, at Paul's time, about this. So for a second, let's go there with me, okay? Imagine yourself being in Philippi at around 62 AD, and you get this letter from Paul. And you read it through the, for the first time. You probably wouldn't have been sitting in a big church building like this. You were sitting in somebody's house. And you would notice a couple of things. You'd read through it, and you would, you would just kind of maybe notice the same thing that I've been pointing out, excuse me, um, about the theme of rejoicing and the centrality of joy. But there's one other thing that would jump out to us because it's kind of like familiar language to us, and that is the language of the view of Greco-Roman, uh, the Greco-Roman view on virtues. And though the, the language has kind of become foreign to us, it was not foreign at all to the church in Philippi and to Paul. You see, in Greco-Roman culture, virtues were actually very essential to living. One of the great philosophers, Socrates, once asked the question, how should man live? To what Plato and Aristotle answered, that man should live a life of virtue. Aristotle goes on and defines virtues as a disposition to behave in the right manner and as a mean between extremes of deficiencies and excess, which are vices. We learn moral virtue primarily through habit and practice rather than through reasoning and instruction. Virtue is a matter of having the appropriate attitude toward pain and pleasure. And so we, we take what Aristotle says because it was also core to the culture that Paul was moving into, and Paul takes it and says, this is true in a way, and I'm going to get back to that, but it has to be rooted in joy. And a lot of philosophers and smart people out there actually think that joy is 
kind of like the glue or the central part to virtues. And that's what Paul would actually argue for. This is what he would argue for. That it is made possible by the assurance that through the Holy Spirit, we've been giving a life worth living. A life of virtue. Let me say that again. It is made possible by the assurance that through the Holy Spirit, we've been giving a life worth living. And that's exactly what virtues are rooted into. And so the list of virtues in verses 8 are being shifted for us into a different light. They, instead, of, instead of us seeing them as duties, we see them as things that are worth striving for. The things that are worth striving for are true, they're noble, they're right, they're pure, they're lovely, they're admirable, they're excellent, and they're praiseworthy. You see, the virtue system of the Roman Empire was, was actually based on eight sets of different virtues, and they were all expressed either personally or they were to be expressed socially. What a Roman citizen was supposed to do then was to embody these Roman virtues so that he could demonstrate the ideal behavior of a Roman citizen. And then the goal of these virtues would be so that society would run with integrity, that society would flourish, and that the outside world who are not part of the Roman empires would actually see how great the Roman Empire is. And Paul knew that the only way to live a virtuous life well was through the knowledge of what God has done and the power of the Holy Spirit. And with that, he knew that the only way possible to live into these virtues generally was when a person experiences Christ and is transformed through the working of the Holy Spirit. And so what he does is that he replants these virtues into a context where someone is actually fully able to practice and experience these virtues. And if you look at this list of virtues, you would realize that these virtues are actually pretty important to our world today. Because they are to strengthen our character to live a life well. And this is where we're kind of focusing on this, on this theme of community again. This is where I'm going to throw out two questions for you to maybe ponder. What, what virtues does your community practice? Who is your community helping you become? And when I say community, I want you to think first and foremost about the people that you actually interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. But then also I want you to think about the media that you're interacting with because media has become an extension of our community. Remember in the quote that I said earlier from Aristotle, he, he says that, that we learn virtues primarily through habit and practice. Uh, here's Stanley Howes again on this. Oddly, we usually don't become virtuous by trying to be virtuous. The virtues ride on the back of forms of life we discover along the way. So you won't become kind because your mom or your dad tells you to be nice to your newborn sister. It's not a bad thing for you to learn to be nice to her, but I suspect you'll find that kindness has already found its way into your life in the simple joy you receive from the pleasure when you pet your dog. 
The virtues are, so to speak, pulled out of us by our loves. That's why it's natural for us to be kind, because we were created to be so. You see, virtues are the way to live a life worth living. They come by practice, by the shaping of habits, and by an environment that fosters us to help live into these good virtues. The language that you would see in Paul, that Paul would use over and over again, is either he says, clothe yourself in something or put on something. That's the same thing as putting things into practice, as shaping your habits and your forms. And so we become what we love. Where our love is, that's who we become. And what we love molds and shapes us in who we are and how we express ourselves. And it moves moves into the depth of our being, of who we are. And what Paul tells the Philippians is, he says to, he tells them to fill their mind with virtues so they can train their behavior to be able to act according to the way of Jesus in all of life's circumstances. And if you don't feel, if you don't feel like this is good reasoning for me to convict you with the words of Aristotle, James 3, 13 through 18 actually gives us a key to truly unlock why we should be getting ourselves into this environment. What James points out is that this exercise, it's an exercise in growing in wisdom, which is exactly what all of our wisdom literature is written about. You have the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of, so- uh, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastics. They're all about practicing wisdom, sound wisdom. And so much of what Paul writes in his letters are based out of that understanding of the importance of wisdom. So practicing living a life of virtue is living wisdom. So therefore, we should seek what builds us up in wisdom. Seek what brings you into the life of cruciformity. Seek what conforms to you the gospel. What's worthy of respect whatever is pursuing God's righteousness, whatever is not tainted by evil, whatever is morally aligned with Christ's teachings, whatever teaches the full truth of the gospel, those are the things that we seek after. And that's so important because if you look at our world around us, so much more around us is just filled with negativity and the heaviness And it's kind of like infusing things in us. We experience things like slander, self-righteousness, self-image, gossip, destruction, revenge, discrimination, shame. Those are all vices that we experience that are everywhere around us. And if we take those things in, they shape and form us. We are formed by the experiences like the killings of our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka. We are formed by the words and actions of our politicians. We are formed by the latest celebrity drama. Here's a controversial one even for me. We are formed by sports and all the craziness around it. And we are formed by the latest Netflix shows that we spend binge-watching 
over and over, watching the next episode, the next episode, watching things like Keeping Up with the Kardashians or The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills or whatever fill in the blank. What you take in there, what you sit there, is not just you numbing out. It's something that your heart absorbs. It goes into your being. And please don't, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that these things are inherently bad. There is a place for them. But your heart will soak those things in that you're being taught the virtues or the vices that you're being taught. And eventually they will express themselves out of you. And that's a lot of times when you start feeling depressed or we start worrying because we filled our hearts with junk rather than the joy that is found in God and the experience of his kingdom. In her Netflix special, The Call to Courage, research professor and New York Times bestseller Brene Brown says this about experiencing joy. Research participants, and she's obviously a research professor, research participants who had the ability to lean fully into joy only shared one variable in common, gratitude. So how was earlier told us that worship is a form of rejoicing, and now Brene Brown adds that to, a really to really lean into joy, we ought to practice gratitude. What Paul, how Paul would sum this all up would say that we would be moving into a state of thanksgiving. As you choose joy, grow in joy, pursue virtues, you will express thanksgiving. And that's what we see in verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And I think it's one of the few sentences where you have anxious and thanksgiving in the same sentence. Because we usually don't connect it, right? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So for us, when we read these verses, it's easy for us to just get tangled up in the first word. Don't be anxious, right? It's another thing of like, rejoice always, don't be anxious. And, and it's, it's normal, it's, it, it's okay to do that because what we see most of the time are the things right in front of us. And not only do we see the things that are right in front of us, a lot of times those things right in front of us are worrisome, and at some point we're like, how is this all going to work out? How is this all going to work out for me? Like when you get the news that you owe a whole lot of taxes and you don't even have the money for them. Or you have medical expenses or medical emergencies and you don't even know how to deal with that. A boyfriend or a girlfriend who unexpectedly breaks up with you. The fear of losing your job and not, not knowing how to make it happen in San Francisco and potentially having to move back home. You worry about a career or do I even have a career? And some of us may actually be even worrying where our next meal is coming from. You see, we have plenty to worry about. That's a fact. And so does Paul now simply tell me to just shut that off? Does he say, you should just stop worrying, stop worrying? No, that's not Paul. What Paul proposes is a better way to deal with your worries. As a member of the colony of heaven, God is our king. And so naturally, it is the king who provides for the citizens of his country, of his kingdom. 
And let me just say that numbing anxiety, worries, and pain should not be a dominant factor in the life of in his kingdom. Because God is good and God is mighty. And sometimes I think it is our lack of faith to actually understand that in those parts. Because here is what Jesus says in Matthew 25. He actually says, don't worry about anything. God actually cares for the lilies of the field and the birds in the air. Why wouldn't he care for you who was created in his image? So when Paul says here, so what Paul says here is when you start worrying about anything that is worrisome, come to God in prayer and petition with thanksgiving and present your request to God. Let me get a little sidetracked here, talking about prayer. Um, in German, we have a name for our super basic prayers. We call them Stoßgebete, which literally translates to push prayers. And those quick prayers, uh, those are the quick prayers that you pray, where you literally just tell God to just do something really quick for you. And it could go with something like this, like, God, can you please give me a parking spot? <laughs> I'm not saying that God won't answer that prayer. He, he hears it, and, and he might answer it. But I also think that if that is the reflection of our prayer life, then that's, first of all, a fairly skewed view of who God is. And second, that's actually probably all you get out of the relationship with God. Because you see, the deeper and more vulnerable that you get with him, the more he reveals himself to you. And if you have a very shallow way of communicating with him, you most likely see God just as a quick fix to your problems. And that's a very shallow view of who God is. I also want to make just sure of one other thing before I move on, is that this is not just, that Paul is not just giving you like the secret sauce to how to pray. He, he doesn't just say, if you pray this way, everything's going to happen. And, and I actually have seen that a lot in the way that we use how we end prayers. We always end prayers in Jesus' name, amen. And then we think because Jesus said, whatever you pray in my name, he has to do whatever I say right? Like, as long as I finish the prayer with that, he's got, he's got to do it because that's what he said he's going to do. But that's just not true. He doesn't have to. If you actually read the, the rest of the verses, you understand that you pray these prayers with a mindset of your, your mind being set into the kingdom of God. And a lot of times I, th I think that we see prayer as just like a magic bullet where you converse with a genie who is just at your service for you. What I believe God is, or whatever believe Paul is actually saying here, that it's worth the time you put into praying, conversing with God, being open and vulnerable with Him, and worship Him, expressing your gratitude to Him, and that conversing with Him can and should entail certain elements. If we've experienced the joy, then Thanksgiving will will actually flow into our prayer life, and we will become people of 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 strong prayer lives. Now imagine the kind of relationship that you can have with God where you would just pour everything in front, of, in front of him, where you just give him everything, where you just let loose. You don't think about any sort of consequences with him, where you, just, where you would just tell him everything the way it is. Imagine having that relationship with him where you just bring him your fears, your worries, everything at the feet of Jesus. Because you see, being fully open and vulnerable brings about a closeness. It draws you closer to him. Because what Paul says is promised to us. 
that we find joy, that we find a joy again. It might be a different kind of joy that we are looking for. The joy that he says we will get is that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so now we've truly given it all to God and our faith was restored and we enter into kind of like an ease of things when we've just downloaded it all to God. And it kind of just feels, you just feel better because it's just like off your chest. It's loosened the chains. You see, I, I want you to know that joy is possible with God. Joy is possible. Let me finish this quote, uh, let me finish with this quote by someone that, that I personally admire a lot, that I look up to, that I learn a lot from, and who really, really points me to Christ consistently. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, two people, if you got it. <laughs> but get this quote, it's so beautiful. Joy abides with God, and it comes down from God, and it embraces spirit, soul, and body. And where this joy that just came down from God and embraces all of us has seized a person, there it spreads, there it carries one away, there it bursts open closed doors. And that's what I want to leave you with. That you are able to receive the joy that God has and that God's joy wants to embrace all of you so that it spreads and it carries and that it bursts open doors that you might have thought were closed. With that, let's enter into this mindset, into this time of worship with, with joy, with gratitude, in prayer, setting our minds on the virtues of God's kingdom. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, it is still you who are we are after. Because there, there seems to be something that only you can do in us. We're not promised to just have a perfect life all the time, but we are promised things of your kingdom. We promise that joy is accessible for us even when it feels weird, even when it feels far away from us. And so tonight, would you... Let us experience your joy again. Would we, able to, would we be able to just invite you in our circumstances, experience the joy of the Lord that is our strength, even when it seems counterintuitive? Because that's what you do and that's who you are. You make a way where there is no way. So do it again. In Jesus' name, amen.